And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Right? Um, and so if you're, if you're being formed in, in Christianity and discipleship, uh, along the way, you'll probably hear this notion of the Great Commission. This is often what people refer to in the Great Commission, where Jesus is sending the disciples into the world to spread his message of life, death, and resurrection. And uh, when he gives the Great Commission, we, we often hone in on uh, various things, maybe baptizing, maybe the go, uh, maybe the teaching, maybe the behold, I am with you always. Uh, I don't hear enough about the all nations piece. Um, and, and for uh, 11, 11 disciples who were Jewish men that probably had not had a single relationship with a non-Jewish person, for Jesus to say, make disciples of all nations, it would have landed different. Uh, it, would, it would have landed actually very significantly because Jesus is giving them a vision of what he wants to see happen. And at this point, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's predominantly written to Jewish people. Uh, and at this point, the disciples had very little interaction with non-Jewish people. And any interaction that they did have with non-Jewish people, Jesus kind of led the discussion and the conversation and the miracle. And now he's saying, you saw what I did, you saw what I taught, now go do likewise with all these people and to, to observe all that I've commanded. Uh, and it, it would make sense, he would say things like, behold, I'm with you always at the end of the age, because I imagine on some level they felt a level of intimidation. You know, how, how do I talk to other people groups when I have no experience with talking to other people groups? They, they, didn't, get a, they didn't get a seminar, they didn't get a training, but that was the mission. And that word there in Greek, all nations, is pantatai ethnos, mm-hmm. so it's all ethnic groups. That's what we want to see happen. <clears throat> Um, and so when, when, I, when I think of the word multi-ethnic, I mean, probably the most formal would be like pan-ethnic, or pan-ethnic ministry. Uh, but we say multi-ethnic because uh, you know, all, all nations are actually represented in the city. But, and I believe that multi-ethnic ministry just, should be just a reflection of the ethnic realities of the community that you're in. Right? Uh, so I, I don't think that uh, all multi-ethnic ministry need to kind of be split four ways, or five ways, three ways, and 30% of it. Like it needs to be an accurate reflection the community in which it's in. Um, and that most communities at this point, 2022, have multiple ethnicities. Um, and so uh, I appreciate listening. I mean, man, I, I could go on a lot of threads here. But this the definition of ethnicity is a category for a group of people that has descendants from a shared place, so, uh, so people groups. Um, There's so many things I can say about that. But yeah, so uh, uh, people from a, a certain people group, we, we want to see that represented. Now, the reason why I'm um, sorting in my head is because when you start talking about ethnicity, it often quickly turns into race. Uh, and, and actually, race and ethnicity are not one-to-one the same thing. But in, in, in our country, those two are actually conflated. Uh, whether for better or for worse, right or wrong, pull them apart if you want it, it, you know, we, we can have that conversation. But the reality is those two are often... Uh, conflated, and they've been conflated intentionally. Uh, that, that race is a social construct that was created for a hierarchy to, to hold power. Uh, and so that, that reality did not just affect non-white people, it affected white people as well. So uh, there's this sense of like, how do I shed my ethnicity? And so you don't see the Polish realities, you don't see the Irish realities, you don't see the Italian realities, because there was a sense of like, how do I gain the most power and it was around skin color and kind of this, this continuum of that. And that is still the reality. The, the census uh, that 
that comes out. It only has two ethnicities, Hispanic and non-Hispanic. Those are the only two ethnicities according to the census, but there's five races. Um, and we can be prickly about that, we can be angry about that, but that is what it is. Uh, and, and how do we navigate uh, ministry in a racialized society that, well, frankly, is going to continue to be racialized? <clears throat> um, so ethnicity. So I, I like this from Mark DeMoss, Anya Fanel, Kubwe. She's, they say, Jesus uh, envisioned the multi-ethnic church for the sake of the gospel on the night before he died. So one of the last things he says, like, Father, I pray that they be one just as we are one. That was one of the last things he prayed uh, before the crucifixion happened. Luke described the multi-ethnic church in action at Antioch as a model for church congregations to follow. The missionary journeys came out of Antioch, and Antioch was, was multi-ethnic. Uh, that, uh, and that, that multi-ethnic ministry was the, was the norm for churches in the first century. Uh, Paul prescribed the multi-ethnic church in order to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people. Uh, so there's, there's just a, a, an intentionality, an awareness. There, there is no kind of color blindness going on uh, in the New Testament, really in all of Scripture. Uh, and so the, the level of intentionality in Scripture should be our same level of intentionality uh, as well. So this is what the census says. So there's uh, Pew Research says that by 2060, white Americans will only make up approximately 43% of the U.S. population. So that's the notion of majority culture, uh, uh, dominant culture, subdominant culture, all this stuff. And by we're, we're becoming increasingly diverse. Uh, I think at this point we're kind of at a tipping point. But in like 1960, the country was 85% white. Uh, it's definitely not that now. Um, and according to the census in Durham County, uh, Durham County is 43% white, 36.9% black, uh, Hispanic or Latino, 13%, Asian, 5.5%, and others, two or more races indigenous is 2.5%. So that's kind of the racial demographics, ethnic dem demographics, again, you can get all quickly about that if you want to. Uh, but that's kind of where, where we are in terms of Durham County. So when we talk about being a, a church that is reflective of our community, uh, like this, this is something that's on our radar. I don't think it's appropriate to say our goal is to be these numbers. Uh, because one, that's arrogant to just assume that if we just calibrate it right, uh, we're going to get all the right numbers. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, that in just a moment. But uh, we, we do want to be a church that is, is ministering to the people of Durham. Um, and the people of Durham, the, the people that come to our church, <laughs> people from Durham. And so if, if we're an 85% roughly white church, uh, that, that says something about who we are, who are, we are reaching and who we are communicating to that we are welcoming, right? Uh, so we need to be uh, crafting and cl more, more clear, being sanctified on what we mean when we're welcoming people. All right, so that's a little bit about multi-ethnic. So culture, All right, so long form, multi-ethnic cross-cultural ministry. Uh, so culture, how do you define culture? Uh, I, I, I've heard a lot of definitions uh, and no, all of them either are really good or just don't cap capture quite well. But I pulled this from a book called Cultural Intelligence, where it's this and many more uh, definitions. I like this, this last one here. It says, culture is a system of shared concepts, beliefs, and values, uh, the framework from which we interpret and make sense of life in the world around us. Right. So this could be clothes, accents, priorities, uh, Family concepts, communication styles, uh, notions on what modesty is, what is leadership, uh, what does it mean to communicate respect, child rearing, uh, understandings of competition versus cooperation, like all of that has a cultural reality and more. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I'm trying not to do a fire hose here. But uh, when, when we think about culture, there are things that are observable and there are things that are unobservable uh, or things that are material or things that are immaterial. Uh, and, and a lot of times when people are thinking about what, what ministry is, they're thinking about observable material things. Uh, and they pursue those observable material things and then wonder why their church is not more diverse and they don't realize that there are, there are things that are unobservable and immaterial uh, that, that actually challenge and make it hard to kind of coexist together, which is not unique. Right? That's why we have a New Testament, because there, there was constant friction between Gentiles and Jews. There were things going on in terms of observable and unobservable expectations, baggage past that were coming together, and it was like really, really hard. Do we eat this pork or not? And it was a whole thing that Paul had to write about. Right? And so being aware of those, those realities there. You're, you, everyone has a cultural perspective. The fact that we are American. Uh, the fact of, of our education. Private school versus public school versus home school. Single versus married. Married versus, versus parenting. All those things factor into our culture in terms of our priorities, our concepts, our values, and beliefs. Right? And so in a moment here, when we do this activity, uh, I'm going to put some... Uh, some images on the table and, and ask you to just kind of discuss as a table uh, how these, these images are analogies of culture, both in their opportunities and their challenges, right? So when I talk about observable versus unobservable, right? The iceberg. Uh, that what's observable is the 10% that's above the water. Uh, but what's unobservable and immaterial are the things that are below the surface that takes a lot of time to get into and actually, and again, we're going to talk about this in a moment, can actually get to in just an hour and 15 minute church service. Okay? They actually have to have a relationship to get the unobservable aspects of culture um, and crossing is them. All right? So, cross cultural. So, before I dig, dig into it, let me pause. See, is, is, am I making sense? Any questions thus far? Again, I'm skipping the rocks across the water that we can spend hours talking about this, but. I want to get a little bit of handlebars here on, on, these, on these terms. What we mean when we say that. Good. And we'll have some time for, for discussion at the end. All right, so cross-cultural. Uh, Randy Neighbor. So, uh, so I said I was in the seminary when I was convicted about cross-cultural multi-ethnic ministry and uh, Lord willing, I want to be a learner in this. So after I graduated from seminary, I went down to Chattanooga, Tennessee for a few years and uh, was involved in a church there called New City Fellowship. And New City Fellowship is a multi-ethnic cross-cultural church. There's just several leaders there that have been doing this for decades, um, just decades of fighting through this, uh, you know, in the 70s. Also. And so uh, you know, Carl Ellis, names like Carl Ellis, Brian Ficker, uh, Kelly Capick, Randy Neighbors, uh, so on and so forth, Karen Ellis, these are all folks that are at this church and have just shaped me in incredible ways and continue to do so. By, by their ministry. So Randy Neighbors, who was the founding pastor, not the current pastor, but the founding pastor of New City Fellowship, wrote a book called Insufficient. It's talking about ministry competencies and, and some of those kind of cross-cultural things. And he says this, uh, crossing cultures is a process of becoming. It is an intentional, purposeful, and dedicated pursuit of listening to, learning from, engaging with, and feeling the pain, aspirations, hopes, and dreams of another culture. Right, so I think all those words actually really matter. Intentional, purposeful, and dedicated in its pursuit. Listening to, learning from, engaging with, and feeling the, feeling the pains. Right? 
And so we, we don't, the reason why I tend away from the term multicultural uh, is because multicultural doesn't speak to intention. Uh, you know, the food court at the mall is multicultural. Um, but none of those restaurants are actually crossing into each other's domain. Uh, and again, I'm not saying when people say multicultural that they're meaning that. I'm saying I think you know, words matter. So I, I choose uh, cross-cultural because not only are we acknowledging culture, but we're taking the intentional step towards another culture, uh, both in listening and engaging with and loving. Right. So cross-cultural uh, is what matters uh, to me. And, and what Randy is talking about here, he's referring from 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. Can somebody read that? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. I know it's long and Maybe faded. Can somebody read that? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. The Jews are the king of Jew, in order to win Jews. Those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. So just a quick check in. What, uh, what, in this list, name some, some demographics that Paul is taking note of. I'll call it out. What do you see? Jews. Jews. Yeah. I'm not trying to trick you, I promise. <laughs> Jews. What else do you see? Those under the law. Who else? The weak. Who's up? So at least one more there. Those outside the law. Those outside the law. So there's a lot that could be said here uh, about this passage, uh, but I feel like this is a really good example of the call towards cross-cultural mission. Uh, And there's a few things here that I think are really important if we're talking about pursuing cross-cultural. One, uh, Paul... Uh, he was clear about his own culture so that he understood what it meant to cross into another's culture, right? Uh, so he's, he's, not, <laughs> he's not appropriating <laughs> when he's going into these different demographics. Uh, he's clear about who he is because he has thought about his culture, defined his culture, and realized where there are gaps between his culture and the culture of those he's trying to minister to. And so on some level, he's given some thought to his own culture. And that's actually really important in cross-cultural ministry. Another thing to observe is, uh, he, <laughs> it's always interesting to me that to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Uh, it's like, Paul, you Jewish. What, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about? I became as a Jew. You are a Jew. You became something you already are. What are you talking about? Uh, but Paul there is just, he's making a distinction between ethnicity and culture. Like he, he is ethnically Jewish, but he's not actually culturally Jewish. His culture is a gospel culture. And so he has it in his mind, I'm going to be critiquing my own ethnic culture. Uh, that, that I don't think my own culture is pure. And I need to help other cultures understand mine. Right? So he's not trying to colonize. <laughs> right? uh, but he realized the culture that he comes from needs the gospel. Right? Um, other thing, <clears throat> lots of things to... to to note here, uh, the, the idea of contextualization. Uh, so there's a people under the law, uh, which is interesting, because people under the law would be, be Jewish people. 
Um, but again, there, there's something about a value system that he's acknowledging there. Um, and, and all of this, and last thing I'll acknowledge before we move on, there's a lot of things that could be said here. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Like, why are we trying to be cross-cultural? No matter where we are on, on, the, on that journey, no matter how, you know, failures and, and successes, why are we doing that? We're doing it for the sake of the gospel. That the gospel is actually propelling us to do this. Uh, and not propelling us to rescue people in other cultures, but to share in the blessing of the gospel with other people. I want to share in this with all people. Uh, the, the same level of intentionality that the gospel has, I want that same level of intentionality. And Acts says that they turn the world upside down. They didn't just stay in their cultural community. Right? So the why there is really important. I'm not going to get all into the why because Fabian's going to dig into that. But there's a little bit of why here. Like what, what is propelling us in this gospel ministry uh, in this way, contextualizing, thinking through cultural realities? It's, it's the, the gospel is actually calling us to that. All right. <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Owen says this about the beautiful community. The testimony throughout scripture is that God is one. At the same time, without contradiction, the scriptures present the mystery of three persons who are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fragmentation, division, disharmony, and disunity are our story, are our story but they are not God's. Uh, his is the story of beauty, and it is most profoundly seen in his communal life. Far from a dry, secondary, unimportant technical doctrine, God as Trinity, unity and diversity, diversity and unity, is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. And so again, I, uh, I'm self-editing here. But the, 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 like really, if we want to really backtrack where we get this notion of cross-cultural realities, we can go back to the Trinity. <laughs> uh, we, we, only, we only have to go back 2,000 years. We, we can go back to eternity. The, the triune God is communal. Uh, the reason why we are so relational is because we are made in the image of God, and God is relational. But he's not just relational because he created people to have relationship with. He's relational because he himself, mm-hmm. three persons in one, is, is relating. And there is constant deference and highlighting and honoring and intentionality going on in the Trinity. And so when we say we're in Christ, we get to, be, we get to commune with this cross-cultural relational God. That's constantly doing all this. Uh, but the reality is we have the fragmentation, disharmony, and sin. that make that hard. And so we I, I, uh, idolize our, our cultures. All right, so that's a little bit about that. So thanks, Dr. Ann. So mission. So multi-ethnic cross-cultural mission. Uh, and again, sometimes I say cross-cultural ministries. I'm saying multi-ethnic ministry. I'm okay. Uh, it's not operation. We said, that's wrong. Like, there's, 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 I think that, that's the long form. So mission. Now, when I think of mission, I think of Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge, the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Like, that is our mission. Uh, our mission is to spread God's glory everywhere. Everywhere. In, in, in all places. Uh, and uh, as, as far as the curse is found. But that comes together with uh, what's called the culture mandate in Genesis 2. Uh, that the Lord, he took the man and put him in the garden uh, to work it and keep it. Depending on your translation, you might see steward it, um, cultivate it, um, work it. I think that's what that, that says. Um, and so the, the, the culture mandate, which is a, whole, a real theological topic there. that You can really double click on a lot of things there. Uh, that is what is ingrained in people as image bearers. And, and it did not change when the fall happened. 
So yes, now we're on the other side, and there's thorns and thistles, and there's enmity. There's all these, there's all this strife happening. But how that strife shows up is in our image bearing. We are cultivating. Um, so technology is advancing. Community is advancing. Clothes and fashion, all these things are advancing. Now we idolize those things. We idolize our phones and all these different things. But uh, we, we, that that notion of cultivation is, is is still there. And the reason why I got put in our hearts is because he, for whatever reason, in his divine sovereignty, he placed the people in the garden and said, "I want you to spread my glory from the garden." He didn't actually want them to stay in the garden. Uh, he, he wanted to start in the garden. And he wanted his glory to spread across the earth. Uh, and then we kind of messed up his plans, but we didn't change his plans. Uh, that mission is still there. Uh, so when we think about mission, we're thinking about people, we're also thinking about creation, um, but the, the cultural framework of all of that uh, is very clear. Um, and so when we're thinking about uh, cross-cultural mission ministry, you need to understand that cross-cultural is missiology, it's not ecclesiology. Well, it's more missiology than it is ecclesiology. What do I mean by these fancy two other words? So cross-cultural ministry is about a mission mindset. Uh, it, it is not about just a church growth exercise. And so a lot of people, they'll come to our church, or they'll come to churches, other churches I've been to that are multi-ethnic, and they'll say, you know, I, I wish there was more multi-ethnic cross-cultural. Like, how, how, how are you guys accomplishing this? Right? And it's a great question. I, I, I think it's wonderful. I'm glad it's on people's radar. Um, but it, it, it often is, not always, it often is like, I come to the church on Sunday and I'm looking for this program. Or I come to some of your programs throughout the week and I'm looking for this kind of aspect of the program. And so at its worst, I'm saying that's always the case, but at its worst, I feel like people are approaching you like they approach Walmart. Okay? And when you come to Walmart and you go to the cereal aisle, you're not seeing the Cocoa Puffs. So I'm like, well, I want to see some Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> and so you go to the clerk and say, hey, do you have some Cocoa Puffs in the back? Because I'm not seeing them on the shelf. <laughs> so the clerk will go back into inventory, and, and hopefully they have some Cocoa Puffs because they, they, they fire. And he'll grab the Cocoa Puffs, bring them out to the floor, and put them on the shelf and say, here you go. Here are the Cocoa Puffs. And then you're happy. You grab your Cocoa Puffs, and you check out. Right? And you're excited about your Cocoa Puffs. Uh, and, and you don't see it. And so you're like, okay, I, I need the person that works here to go and get it for me so that I can consume it. Okay? Uh, that's the consumerism that, that is a stronghold on our ecclesiology about how we understand church. Reality is that cross-cultural mission, if you are a Christian, you are called to this. It, it isn't something that the store clerk is going to the back to get and pull out some black people and put it on the shelf. And you say, oh, great, I'm at a cross-cultural church now because other people are doing it. Okay. You as a Christian are called to this as a mission. And in a lot of ways, the question about are we cross-cultural is, is the same conversation of are we evangelizing. But a lot of times our, when we don't have a lot of diversity in terms of culture, we also don't have a lot of diversity in terms of worldview. And so a lot of us don't even remember the last time we shared our faith. Right? Let alone have a conversation with a person that is ethnically other. Right? Uh, but that's the challenge. Right? That, that's the challenge of, of being intentional in the world that we live in. Uh, that our sanctuaries are actually reflections of our dinner tables. Like the, the, the church is the summation of the relationships of the people. And so if we are an 85% white church, it's because the relationships of the people in our church are at least 85% white. 
right? It's, it's, it's not actually kind of a mysterious disconnect. Like, the primary way that people come to any church, any church, is by relationship, being invited. And the secondarily is, you know, Googling websites and whatnot. Uh, but the primary way is someone invited them. And so if you're in this mindset of inviting, which is natural, if you, if you love your church, I hope you love your church, uh, you will want to invite people in. Uh, but if your relationships are not intentionally multi-ethnic, when you're doing the good work of inviting people to church, it's going to be predominantly white people that you invite. All right? And so if we're want wanting to be a, a more multi-ethnic, cross-cultural church, uh, yes, we need to have some, some thoughts on how we do church. We also need to be thinking about how we are actualizing mission in our lives. Right? That we're not coming and having an experience and then going back to just doing whatever. Right? Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit on mission. Sorry, I found myself preaching a little bit there. Let me, let me, let me get myself together. All right. Um, so, uh, other thing. so we are meaning makers, uh, therefore we are culture makers. Uh, so keep that in mind. And good missiology leads to good doxology. So again, whether ecclesiology, doxology, or missiology at all, it needs to go back to doxology. Why are we doing this? For the glory of God. Why are we being intentional about relationships? Ultimately, it's for the glory of God. All right, so that's mission. And again, going back to, to Matthew 18, or Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. This is the great commission. This is the, the missional call. Uh, and it was, it was very tangibly uh, multi-ethnic in its call. All right. Uh, so let me just share a little bit more, drill down for our church. So uh, about a year ago, the leadership of the church went through what's called a CQ assessment. So CQ, uh, which is shorthand for cultural intelligence, but there's actual organization a global network organization that does cultural assessment uh, and training. Uh, and all of our leaders went through this assessment. We had someone come uh, and, and do some training with us. And they talked about CQ, or cultural intelligence, in four uh, broad categories. So there's drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. So again, this is, we're talking about the what here. So we're talking about what, what does it look like uh, and, and kind of making it more practical. Uh, so we're thinking about drive, level of interest, persistence and confidence during multicultural interactions. Knowledge, understanding about how cultures are similar and different. Uh, awareness, uh, strategy, awareness and ability to plan for multicultural interactions. And then four, uh, action, ability to adapt when relating and working in multicultural contexts. Right? And so <clears throat> in terms of like growing and being cross-cultural, like all four of these things need to kind of be operating. And we were all assessed on where, where there was high, you know, all this and that. And, and the assessor, I was very thankful, he thought we were above average, but definitely told us about some growth areas uh, that we have. Uh, but I say, you know, for you, and we don't have to have a discussion about this, but uh, when, you, when you see these four things, or where in your life you feel like uh, there's some particular growth that you need. Uh, Christ Central tends to not have an issue with drive. That is, that is a challenge, but it tends not to have an issue with drive. And some of that is, is Durham. Uh, uh, but there, there's often a lot of struggle with strategy um, and, and knowledge and action. <laughs> all the things, really. Uh, we, we all struggle with all the things. Uh, and so when we're talking about how, how am I growing in this, uh, maybe these are kind of buckets where you can be thinking. Um, and uh, from for my experience, my, in terms of like broad, predominantly white churches, uh, if there is an encouraging step, it's like drive to knowledge and then that's it. Uh, so a church will, will, ha will have a thing, and it will introduce a book club. So we're, we're going to read this book, 
Uh, and then there's nothing after that in terms of how, how do we then move what we've gained here towards how we're doing ministry and then actually execute it and adapt as we fail and as we're growing, as we're learning new things. Um, all of that is, is a challenge, and we need to make room for all of that. Okay? Those are four broad categories I think are really helpful. Right? <clears throat> so where does this land if we do all four of these things? Uh, when, when I hear uh, the, 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 the tangibles of multi-ethnic cross-cultural ministry, uh, these are things that I feel like are, are actualized in that. Uh, gospel unity, justice and reconciliation, and, and intentional spiritual formation. So intentional spiritual formation, I have a bias because I'm the formations pastor, but I think intentional spiritual formation is actually very critical. Uh, that, that it is an ongoing shaping and forming by how you understand your culture, how you understand other culture, how you understand the culture of Durham. Uh, that should be that should be ongoing and, and tethering uh, to your understanding of the gospel. Um, and so we are intentional about having these different programmatic things throughout the year, but certainly they are not sufficient. In your own life, there needs to be some things. And I don't know how many of you have experienced being discipled or mentored, um, but a lot of times, again, this is an epilogue or an appendix, and it's not actually integral to how we understand the beauty of the gospel. Uh, and that's a, that's a shortcoming. It should always be part of the discussion, part of our, of our formation and shaping. Uh, gospel unity. <clears throat> um, so again, Ephesians uh, 3, uh, Ephesians 4 calls us to make every effort to get the unity of the Spirit. Uh, y'all, y'all ever play on the merry-go-round? Y'all know, y'all know what a merry-go-round is? Um, I had to look it up. So what do you call that thing that goes around in, in the park? Uh, it's the merry-go-round. Like, no. I was thinking the carousel. Um, so I, I played with the merry-go-round. I had some fond memories of that. But you play the merry-go-round, you hold on to the bars, and you have fun each other all around. And then somebody, usually somebody with some strength, uh, will, will start running and kind of moving the, the merry-go-round around and go really fast, really fast, really fast. And there's always an annoying kid that keeps their legs off the merry-go-round. <laughs> like kicking the dirt and making the merry-go-round go slow. Um, or there's another kid that's standing up and they say, how long can I stand and not fall and bust my head? Uh, but the faster you go, uh, you, all the kids, they know, okay, we don't really stay safe. We need to sit down, hold on to the bars, uh, and, and, and cling for dear life because uh, it's going really fast and it's fun. Right? Uh, the, the, the struggle I see in like moments like 2020 uh, is, that, is that 2020 really spun the merry-go-round. Uh, and not everybody was actually holding on together. Uh, and, and we didn't actually know how much not everybody was holding on together until it got really fast and really hectic. Uh, and it, there's a goodness, but also like a, a fear, like we're in 2022, and I feel like in some ways, the merry-go-round has slowed down. Uh, if there's another shooting, maybe it'll speed back up again. Uh, the next election cycle, Christ have mercy. <laughs> right. um, and the merry is going to go really fast again. And, and when, I, when I think about gospel unity, gospel unity is I am I'm clinging to the gospel for dear life with other brothers and sisters so that when it gets fast, when it gets hectic, I'm not jumping off. I'm not jumping off. And also, I'm not having my legs hanging all over the place and trying to, trying to slow the thing down because it's going to actually hurt me. I don't need to actually worry about how fast the merry is going. I need to cling on together with my brothers and sisters for dear life, right? 
And so I say gospel unity intentionally because you can be unified and not be unified around the gospel. Right? You know, the KKK was very unified. Right? When you're unified, you are one, you are together. Uh, and, and unity uh, is actually divisive. People often put it against each other. It's like, well, don't be divisive, just be unified, as though those are the either or. Uh, but unity is divisive, and so is the gospel. Uh, the, the gospel it divides against sin, it divides against hate. Uh, we, we can't actually be unified with hate, not well. Um, and the same with unity. So what are we actually clinging to and holding on for dear life when the merry-go-round goes? I want us to be holding on to the gospel. Because uh, it is sure, it is solid, it will never leave us, never forsake us in the Lord. Um, but we don't always cling to it as we should. Uh, and, and I think the moments like 2020, we, we, should, we should not dismiss all the things that were revealed in that season. Uh, because it was revealed, it wasn't created, it was revealed more so. Uh, and it's still there. And, and, and the reason why uh, you know, I'm not jaded and bitter and whatnot is because I, I, I knew it was there. Because I'm, tr- I'm trying to constantly be formed and knowing that it's there. Uh, and the, the latest blog is not, not going to convince me uh, of where things have changed. Like it's, it's there. Uh, and I believe it's there because the gospel says it's there. It says it's there. At any given moment, no matter how progress, thank God for Barack Obama, but there's always sin. There's always the need for the gospel in all areas of life. Right? And so that should actually sober us and humble us. That this work preceded us and this work is actually going to last beyond us. Because sin is going to last beyond us. Unless Jesus comes back, please have, have mercy, Lord. Um, and then justice and reconciliations. Let me, let me say something just quickly there. That if you're, if you're really digging into multi-ethnic cross-cultural realities, you, you are also entering into the brokenness that is a feature of these different cultures. And, and justice becomes a buzzword, but justice is merely about doing right. Uh, then in the Greek, in the New Testament, the word for justice and the word for righteousness are actually the same thing. That when you're pursuing justice, you're actually pursuing righteousness. Those things should be happening together, uh, which is really important because not all of our friends who are outside the church actually mean the same thing when they say we should be pursuing justice. Okay? So I'm self-editing here. <laughs> uh, and then reconciliation. So there's a lot of uh, badges on reconciliation. Some people will say, don't say reconciliation, say conciliation, because we ain't never been together. Uh, and it's true, this country has never been together. So I sympathize with the conciliation movement. But for Christians, there was a time when we were connected. Uh, but it didn't start with uh, the nation, it started with the Trinity, and it started with the Garden, uh, and then sin broke us apart. And so the Ministry of Reconciliation uh, has righteousness components and justice components that are embodied, right? And so we need to be pursuing that uh, constantly. And so what that could look like, uh, so let me just add a little uh, frustration to this. So uh, Barna did a survey uh, last year and asked these questions to see how many people agreed. So historically, the, the United States has been oppressive to minorities and the percentage of people that, that agreed. So 38% of white people agreed, 79, 79% of black people agreed, 48% of Hispanics agreed, and 38% of Asians agreed. Uh, do you think our country has a race problem? 34% of whites said no. Um, 81% of blacks said yes. Oh, 34% said yes, sorry. 34% said yes. Uh, 81% of blacks said yes. 55% of Hispanics said yes. 39% of Asians said yes. Right. Um, can you imagine th- these demographics coming to be at one church? Can, can you imagine the conversations that could be had around the dinner table? 
right? Um, and, and I think it's an important question to, to say, like, what are you willing to believe when you're engaging the ethnically other? Um, I, I think, I think if, if Barnes surveyed Durham, these numbers would be quite different. But uh, I do think that they, they do reflect something that's really significant. Uh, then when we're talking about racism, we're talking about justice, uh, a lot of the strife is that we, we just don't see it the same way. And we live in a culture that says your truth is your truth and you should be able to live your truth. So if my truth is there is no race problem. And you come to me and say there is absolutely a race problem. What what then do we talk about is true and what are the grounds for talking about what is true? Right. Uh, In the church, that shouldn't be a hard conversation. Truth is actually a prescription Uh, and, and sin is as well. So what are you willing to believe when you're engaging with the other? You, you, we cannot talk about just bringing folks together and ignore uh, the, the systemic sin that have, has impacted these people. And he, he, hear me when I say, I, I believe that people are sinful. I hope you agree, especially if you're a member of this church. I believe that the Bible teaches that people are sinful. I believe that individuals have sin, and at any given moment of their lives, they are in need of the grace of God because sin is there. I also believe that when an individual gets with another individual and those two individuals get together with a group of individuals, that that group is as sinful as the individuals that make it up. Okay? And I feel like that shouldn't be a hard leap. Uh, And then when that group of individuals who are as sinful as the individuals that make it up start making decisions for other groups... I believe that the sin actually permeates their decision-making process. I thought that shouldn't be a hard leap. But then when you talk about this group and say, that's Congress. No, there's no systemic issue. That's school boards. No, no, no. There's there's just despair. There's no discrimination. Uh, That that just does not compute for me. Uh, I believe the, the Bible clearly teaches that groups are as sinful as the individuals that make them up. And so the decisions of individuals and groups are going to be as sinful in need of the grace of God. And so when, those, and so when the ripple effects of those sinful decisions are made, are, are happening, we talk about justice and reconciliation and righteousness, it does not just address the individual. It addresses as far as the curse is found, individuals and groups. So that, that needs to be part of our vernacular understanding when we're saying we're, we're trying to do gospel ministry. All right. All right, I need to finish up here. Uh, so I'll categorize this in terms of equ- pursuing equality versus equity. So I, I took this diagram from Duke Kwan, who's a pastor in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Grace Meridian Church. Uh, and, he, and he feels like when we're, when we're pursuing, uh, when we're actualizing justice, reconciliation, all these different things, we need to have an, an equity mindset over an equality mindset. So an equality mindset is, let me, let's meet in the middle. Right, so I'm giving equal effort in all the directions, and I feel good about that. Uh, but, but an equity mindset says, I'll make room for you. I will do what is necessary for you to have room here. Because in a group, not, not everybody feels equally unwelcome. Right? Uh, sociologists call that salience. Uh, when, when we feel like we're in the minority, if I, if I walk into a room of women, I would be very aware of my maleness. Right? If, I, if I walked into a room of people wearing suits and gowns and I was wearing pajamas, I would all of a sudden be very aware of my pajamas. 
and I would, in some intuitive sense, feel like I, I don't belong here. I need to go home and put on my suit and tie. Right? Um, and, and so similarly, we, we might not be doing anything actually aggressive at our church, but, uh, but, but I have felt it being a doggone pastor here, and, and, and folks that have visited, they'll walk into our church, uh, black or Asian, other, and, and they will all of a sudden feel very black walking into our church. And they'll sit in the back or they'll sit in the balcony and, and they will question the entire service. Am I really welcome here? And then the service will end and everybody's looking for their most familiar person to catch up on the week. And this person who has no friend, no frame of reference, they, they are waiting for someone to say hi. Waiting for someone to combat the, the internal dialogue of am I welcome here? Will somebody say something to them? Or will they, as they go to the parking lot, walk past this group of white people talking to each other, this group of white people talking to each other, having to kind of, you know, the sidewalk be tripping uh, at that door. So we meandering around folks, you know, trying to play this, this game of go-karts. Uh, and, and all along, from, from the balcony to the parking lot, there's feeling this affirmation over and over again, I am not welcome here. And you might have not done anything aggressive. You might have done anything that's antagonistic. When someone comes into a room and they're the minority, they feel very salient. They feel very aware of their difference. And immediately, instinctively, they start questioning, is there a place for me here? And I would love for us in an equity mindset to have our radar up, in general, for newcomers, which can be really hard in this season because we're always having newcomers. Uh, but in this, in this conversation, to have our radars up to be pursuing the person that comes in and is undoubtedly, in my mind, and maybe not always, but undoubtedly in my mind, they're questioning, do I really have a place here? Does that make sense? So it's not just this kind of circle of equal effort, but saying, I, I don't need to put as much effort to convince a white person that they're welcome here as a black person. And so I, I have it on my radar to be very intentional about how do I communicate welcome. Uh, and it's not as simple as, hey, you're welcome here. All right, a couple more slides. <clears throat> so cross-cultural uh, multi-ethnic ministry in action. Can somebody read Acts chapter six, verse one through six? So uh, you know, for, for those of you that are, that are more church, this is the passage in the book of Acts where we see the institution of, of deacons, at least formally. Uh, and there's an issue arising between Hellenists and Hebrews. Uh, and, and the church was growing. The church was communing. The church was multi-ethnic. It was, it was, it was cross-cultural. He's pursuing that. And naturally, uh, the biases, the ethnic biases and the cultural biases were coming out in ministry. 
uh, and, and people came to the disciples, the leaders, and say, hey, we have widows here. Uh, and, and some of the widows are receiving some love that other widows are not. And, and, and we need to figure out how to equitably uh, help uh, our widows that are being marginalized in this process. The disciples did not say, just preach the gospel. Uh, the, the disciples didn't say, well, just pray about it. The disciples took action. Uh, they said, we need to actually make steps towards this, to correct this. There's an injustice here. Uh, and we're not going to shame anyone. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to believe the people when they say there's an issue here, and we will consider what it means to make steps. Even if we are not the actual ones doing it, we will take some time to give it attention and figure out how we can address it. And they commissioned or they ordained uh, deacons, and the names should indicate to you that these deacons are from the Hellenistic community. So they rose up people that understood the cultural framework that was leading to this, this issue. And what I really love, where is it? I was going to highlight it, but I didn't want to take away from the whole passage. Um, verse, uh, oh, I got to read it. We'll pick out from yourselves, but we will devote ourselves to prayer. Oh, here we go. Uh, <clears throat> right, right, right here. And, 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 what they, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. A complaint rose. The disciples believed them. They took attention. They were intentional about raising up multi-ethnic leadership to address the cultural realities that were real and true. And the whole group were like, thank God. They were excited about the intentionality of multi-ethnic cross-cultural mission. They didn't say, oh, I don't know, this might be reverse discrimination. Why, 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 why are, we there? Are, we just to, are we just doing affirmative action? Why, why do we have to do maybe, maybe we need to form a committee and, and, and study this before we actually address this. I don't know. I don't know if I see it right. Maybe there's another. Uh, uh, it wasn't all that. The, the whole group, Hebrews and Hellenists. And the Hellenists could have been just like, see, y'all Hebrews, y'all, y'all ain't really about this life. Y'all ain't really about this cross-cultural life. Y'all don't really care about us. This tokenizing. Y'all don't really care. No, the whole group, they chose to believe the best in each other. I believe that the gospel was moving them towards each other. And when the inevitable sin and issues came up, they rejoiced at the steps that were taken. And, and do you think that there still might have been some issues with the widows after this? I think so. I think even still, there were probably some cultural biases that were leading to the widows not being cared for as well. But there were people in place to check it and engage it and to bring joy in addressing it. Right? That's a beautiful example of what I wish was truer and truer of our church. All churches, but I'm here. Right? Um, so the, the birth of deacons is because of a, a desire towards a multi-ethnic cross-cultural church. So last, last thing I'll say. So this is a little timeline of our nation's history, 1619 to 2022. Uh, this bar is the years of slavery. This bar is the years of segregation. And this bar is the years of, quote unquote, freedom. And this, this timeline is particular for, uh, for black Americans, but uh, we know if we read history that white supremacy was in all directions, uh, in all ways. Um, that's the nature of being systemic. Um, and I put this up because 
again, I, I, hope, I hope you hear me when I say this, that when people come to me and they come and they are frustrated with our church, that we are not more multi-ethnic and not more cross-cultural, and they start questioning if we're really about this, which is fair. It is valid to question that. And I, and I love when people email me. I love when I get to sit down and have coffee with folks. That the harder meetings is when people have already made up their mind that, that we, we're, we don't really care, we can't really do this, uh, and they're just waiting for confirmation. Uh, wh- whenever I have that, that dialogue, though, I, I really, this, this timeline comes to mind. This diagram comes to mind. Uh, because our church is eight years old. And I don't know if you saw this, this little tiny symbol here. That, that's the symbol for our church. So on this whole timeline of hundreds, hundreds of years, we've been in existence for eight. And then people wonder, why are y'all not more multi-ethnic? I, I, that is a valid question. That is a valid question. I hope that question comes up more and more. I hope it comes up in your homes and in your city groups and in these various ministries, I hope that that question is always on the table. Uh, But if there's a suspicion in this question, which again is valid, it is valid to be suspicious. Uh, I just just really want us to have some perspective here. There there is a lot of dysfunction in what we're pursuing. We are not doing it perfectly. We're, We're not even doing it well, but we're doing it. Because we believe that the gospel calls us to do it. And we're excited to do it because the gospel calls us to do it. We're rejoicing in the steps that we have made. And we need far more steps. Uh, But I am convinced that this work is going to outlast us. When when I talk to folks that have experienced trauma in their lives, like severe wrongdoing, sometimes it's once, sometimes it's chronic. I I don't look at them and say, "That that was 10 years ago. You still upset about that? That was in your childhood. You're an adult. You're still working. Why can't you move on? Why don't you put on a, a, a smile? Put on a brighter side of life. I don't do that because I know that when you experience a trauma, when you experience severe wrongdoing, there are ripple effects that are ongoing. That there's an inertia that happens when we experience trauma, when we experience wrongdoing, when we have dehumanization happen to us. Imagine what that could look like for a whole people. Being dehumanized for centuries. My dad, my father, who's still alive, just talked to him yesterday. He graduated from a segregated high school. He has fond memories of whites only, colors only, water fountains, restaurants, all of that. I, I have fond memories of talking to men in my church, deacons and others, that can recall their cousin or their uncle being lynched and retrieving the body. Why are we not more multi-ethnic? Because we need the gospel. And the gospel is working in us. And yes, I would love it to be a lot faster. I sure would. But I would love all of my sanctification to be a lot faster. It is so annoying how sinful I am. And yet I don't throw my hands up and say, well, I'm just going to give up on this Christian life because I just keep on sinning. Golly. I actually trust that the Holy Spirit is, is doing his work in his time. And, and I believe that's the same thing for multi-ethnic cross-cultural ministry. All right. 
so, so that's that's all I got for for this segment. Uh, these are some books if you're if you're interested. So now we're gonna do an activity, and during while we're in this activity, uh, you can, you can have a potty break. Just don't hold it. So like I said earlier in uh, in this time, uh, we're gonna we have some dialogue at your tables. So the question is, how how could you see this, you know, your your image as an analogy for culture and the opportunities and challenges of pursuing culture in light of this analogy? Does that make sense? How would you use the analogy to explain culture, uh, and what opportunities and challenges do you see arising from being cross-cultural with this analogy? All right. So let me see. Have you So thank you everyone for sharing and processing. Again, this is uh, a step towards a broader journey. Um, you know, I, I think of all these different things, that kind of cultural uh, tension, uh, you know, I'm just thinking like observable versus unobservable. Like I think of uh, that the abolitionist movement, that uh, the abolitionists were fighting against slavery. Uh, and praise the Lord uh, that they did that. Uh, but, but where uh, things got messed up is that when people were free from slavery, those same abolitionists were not okay with them actually owning land. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it became an issue of like, we want to stop this thing, mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't actually want to empower you. Uh, I just don't like this thing. Um, and of course, that's not all the abolitionists. Uh, but the, uh, the Jim Crow era would not have happened if the abolitionists kept their vigor. Uh, but they didn't keep their vigor because they were just worried about the presented issue, not an ongoing uh, reality of relationship and humanization. And so there's there was something observable that they were going against, but the unobservable was at play, uh, and so there were stops along the way. And there continues to be stops along the way uh, because there are unobservable, immaterial things that we are that we protect sometimes uh, unconsciously uh, that. Steeped in, in our sin. 
And so we want the sanctification to, to reach down, not just the observable, but the unobservable. And so we want to put the whole thing, all the, all the layers, all the eyes, all the water, all the stuff. Right? All right, so I'm going to have uh, Fabian come up here in just a moment. Um, so we, so this, this past segment was to discuss a bit about the what. Like what, what do we mean when we say long-form, multi-ethnic, cross-cultural mission? Uh, not saying that you have to use that actual word, but um, so we choose long-form and just kind of get iterations of it. Uh, but uh, we, we don't want to just stop there with the what. We want to better understand the why. Um, and we sprinkled a little bit throughout in the last segment, but uh, Fabian's going to come and, and share a little bit about the biblical rationale of why pursuing this, why this is so hard, um, and, and then after that, uh, we'll end around uh, 5.11.30, and we'll have some, some uh, discussion time, so I'll write out your, your questions, and uh, I like Q&D rather than Q&A, because I'm fine with discussion, I don't know if I'm going to have answers, I think that's okay, uh, yeah, uh, but Faye, why don't you come on up, let me, oh, let me uh, get this here. closer to y'all since y'all don't want to be close to us okay let me take this off Like Evan said, my name is Fabian Anderson. I've been a member for several years here at Christ Central. Um, and I help lead the women's Bible study. So um, I am very excited to be here with you guys, sharing the biblical rationale behind it. The ladies who are in the Bible study know that I like to stay close to the text. So um, I really do love talking about the Bible, period. Um, but then in a conversation like this, it's kind of just uh, part of my story since, since I am a black woman. I feel like any time I open up the Bible, I get to be in a cross-cultural situation um, because my whole background has been one where I've been the minority in majority spaces. Um, education was private white schools, um, went to a private, uh, private white institution in Carolina. And so I feel like the, God has just kind of molded my entire life for these moments. And I just, I'm just going to live into it. You know, I just, I just live into it. Um, so grateful to be here with you guys. I've, d I've done this work, like, formally, maybe, like, for five years. Uh, I've worked at an initiative at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for four years doing um, racial reconciliation or race uh, diversity initiative work. And, uh, and then... In certain church, so I'm grateful for the time, like I said. Um, and I'll just say this I do believe that cross cultural ministry is something I get, to, I just, it's not something I do because, like I said, you see, I'm black, it's just something I am, it's something it just is. And so, hopefully, as 
as you, you know, take in what everyone was saying and get some biblical rationale, you can also see, too, that it's something that you are actually are in whatever space you're in. Um, culture is not simply um, defined by racial categories because there's a cultural reality to me being a black person being in a black community. There's a racial, there's a cultural reality of you being a white person being a, in a particular, more predominantly white environment, too, that's not the same. So there are layers to all of this. Um, but let's get started. I wanted to do, uh, an, uh, the first thing that comes to your head, I want you to shout it out. I want us to do a, a quick word association with the word gospel. Um, there are no wrong, there are wrong answers, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're safe here. I'm pretty sure y'all will be all right. So I just want you to just throw out the first, first word that comes to mind um, when I would ask the question, what is the gospel? Anyone? Popcorn. Anyone? Good news. Good news. Okay, great, great. Um, and, and who is the gospel from? God, great, great. Um, where would you find, where in the Bible would you find the gospel? Excellent, excellent, okay. Um, and, and who's the gospel for? Everyone, right. And then why do we have the gospel? What, what do we do with it? Why do we have it? Share it? Okay, great. Awesome. These are great answers. And none of them are wrong. Like, there's not a, not a trick question there. Uh, just, and I trust that we all do know that the gospel is, is the good news of salvation um, from sin made possible by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, we, we know the mechanics of it, but I also want us to get a little bit broader with our perspective um, because sometimes our answers might be, you know, more heavily rooted in the New Testament or might not encompass the whole counsel of Scripture. So another question is, how do you perceive the gospel in, in the larger picture of the entire biblical story? So to broaden it, I want us to um, think about that a little bit. I know that we know the good news is about Jesus, and it's for all humans. And we like to go to verses like Matthew 28. I mean, Evan brought it up. It's a great passage because it, it does, in there, say that the message is for all nations. But sometimes I think that we think the nations are just like those people groups out there, the ones who I don't get to reach. Um, and, and so there might be a disconnect in understanding uh, the gospel and how it actually plays out in the communities, in the local communities in which we live. And so why do I say that I think there's a disconnect? Um, honestly, because we do seminars like this one today because we still need help in, in growing and learning how to uh, apply the gospel in our local context. And because this is really no surprise, our American history really does give us an extremely complicated and distorted and uh, fractured relationship between America's understanding of the gospel and race. Um, this is the same American history though that gave us Phyllis Wheatley, an enslaved poet who chided her white siblings in the faith with her poignant lines. Some view our stable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train. And it took a civil war, three, a civil rights movement, three amendments, and countless protests, citizens, and speeches 
for this country to live a little bit more into the truth that has always been declared in Scripture, that every person is created in the image of God and worthy of being treated with dignity. Um, it's a truth that's been proclaimed by both Christians and, and been proclaimed and resisted by both Christians alike all throughout every step in history. So as we live as New Testament believers in this particular moment in our nation's history, we have come a long way in seeing how the gospel, um, in seeing the gospel a bit more clearly and applying it a bit uh, in a better way than our forefathers. We like to apply Paul's words from Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all, for you are all one in Christ. And amen to that. Like, that's, that's great. That's great that we have, you know, made progress in how the gospel used to be applied to how we're applying it today to people groups. Because our unity is possible by the red blood of Christ that flowed from Calvary and transcends all racial difference. But I wonder that in our efforts to tend to a wound of racial discord, that we neglect the whole body. We... We tend to diminish the distinctions between our neighbors while proclaiming a gospel to the nations um, and maybe in attempts to prove that we're beyond racial hostility. It seems that we diminish the, the distinctions when we say statements like, there's only one race, the human race, or I don't see color, Jesus saves all, no matter if you have polka dots, you know? And, and okay, but, but here's my question. In efforts to prove that we are past racial hostility of the past, are we holding to a colorblind gospel? Are we trying to hold to a gospel that does not see distinctions among our neighbors in efforts to uphold the unity of Christ? A gospel that would diminish the distinctions for the sake of unity? If so, this session is going to challenge that because um, that doesn't create unity. That creates uniformity. Moreover, the gospel must be examined in the whole council of scripture, and when you do so, it's apparent that the gospel is not colorblind at all. Because from the Old Testament, it's been not just the good news, it's been God's story. And it's not just from Jesus' ministry, but it's from God from the very beginning. And it's not just proclaimed in the New Testament, it's been God's intent from the lives of the patriarchs as lived in the Old Testament. And it's not communicated in just broad human terms. It's actually been specific with distinctions for the nations. And it's not, we don't have it just to save souls for the kingdom to come. We have it for the here and now, for justice and righteousness. So we have to consider the whole council of scripture if we want to view a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural gospel correctly. And when we do so, we see that the gospel is a message on a mission to make a people. To be more specific, the gospel is God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural message on mission to make a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural people. There are three factors I want us to consider as we look to scripture as it relates to developing a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural mission. Three factors and one caution. So the first one is intention. God's gospel message was multi-ethnic from the beginning. As God's intention, there is in a biblical foundation for us to examine. God's intention was for the gospel to be a multi-ethnic message. 
Two, distinction. The intent that God has then implies that the people would then live in a multi-ethnic, multicultural community, and that community would have certain characteristics that would distinguish them from other people. We'll see this in scripture as well. Then God's gospel intent and the subsequent distinguishing factors should motivate us into action. And, we, and that action would be to build cross-cultural Christian communities where we take, where, where it takes all of these factors um, to make this community. And we'll look at that too in scripture. But as of all things post-fall, post-Genesis 3, um, we fall woefully short in having this biblically rooted, biblically consistent intention, distinction, and action. And so, as for a caution, we'll examine why I believe we fail to see God's intent for a multi-ethnic cross-cultural mission. So, good news moves. One day I came home um, from grocery shopping and I had like some some supplies for, for a special treat. And my youngest daughter is four. Her name is Risa, and she saw me unpacking the groceries, and I pulled out the graham crackers, and I pulled out the marshmallows, and I pulled out the Hershey bars, and she's like, what is this? And I'm like, we're making s'mores for dessert. And I couldn't even get the sentence out. She goes, s'mores, and she turns around, runs out the kitchen, and runs upstairs. Her siblings are upstairs. And so I can hear her saying, you guys, we're having s'mores for dessert. <laughs> Because good news moves. It's good. It, you know, she was excited about having s'mores. And she was, took off running to tell everyone that we're having s'mores for dessert. The gospel means good news in Greek. And it means God's story in, the old, in old English. God's spell. God's story. And so the gospel is God's story of moving toward man to tell man about himself for redemption and reconciliation and relationship with him. This is the good news. This means that God has a message and is on mission to make a people. And because it's God's story, we're really best to consider when God starts telling this story and to whom. So we're going to go to the Old Testament. And as you'll see, the story of movement to man has been distinctly multi-ethnic from the beginning. Many refer to Genesis 3.15 as a proto-evangelion, the first telling of the good news, where God tells the serpent in the garden that the seed of the woman is going to crush his head, um, you know, to, to, for this plan of redemption. But then the question is, but how did God then put this into action? Like, what did he do to make that truth a reality? And it starts with one man. Genesis 12.1 is the call of Abram. And now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And from the call of Abram in Genesis 12, we see that God is calling one man to be a seed to what will become a great nation. But that call was not just to be a great nation, but it was also to become nations Plural. We see this in Genesis 17, 5 through 7. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name should be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. You'll be exceedingly uh, fruitful 
and I will make into you, you make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then who are these nations, though? Like, where are these people coming from? Well, a few chapters earlier, in Genesis 10 through 11, we have what's called the Table of Nations, where we see the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Shem Ham, and Japheth, and how they have, they're, they're, those three sons kind of made all the peoples of the land of a time who were living in the ancient Near East and Africa and Mesopotamia. And in God's story towards man, God wanted Abraham to be the seed that grows into a nation that in turn invites all these people from these other nations into a relationship with God. In missiology, they call this the centripetal mission of Israel, where they were the center and everyone would be drawn to them to worship God truly and correctly. And beginning with Abraham and in the, in the lives of the patriarchs, Everyone will be attracted to this center. And the Hebrew people in the Hebrew people were to be an attractive center for the nations so, they might, so that they might join and be included in the people of God. God tells the same story of promise to Isaac in Genesis 26, 4 through 5. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give to your offspring these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Move right on to the next patriarch, Jacob. In Genesis 35, 10 through 12. And, it, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall your name be, or shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. In these verses, God is reaffirming his covenant with each man, promising that nations, plural, would be included in his story, in God's story. In fact, if we take a look at, at who belonged to these households of these patriarchs, will find a very diverse group of people among the Hebrew people. I point this out because sometimes um, we might think that the people of Israel are monoethnic of themselves, but that's not the case. They were not. According to the promise, they were even never intended to be. Why? Because this is God's story moving toward all people, for all people to be restored. So you consider Joseph. In Genesis 41, it recounts, um, you know, right in the middle of Joseph's saga, he's been sold by his brothers, sold to the Egyptians, thrown in jail. He survived all of that and earns favor with Pharaoh and gets elevated. And when he gets elevated, he gets married. And he gets married to um, Asenath. And she's Egyptian. And he has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The fact that these two boys are half Hebrew and half African is really significant because a few chapters after um, 41 and in chapter 48 when Israel comes to see Jacob and is and sees his sons he blesses his sons uh, Ephraim and, and Manasseh and he says now your now your two sons who are born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben 
and Simeon are mine. The very people within God's chosen nation are multi-ethnic, and the patriarch Israel, who received the promise of God's story and covenant, includes these half-African boys in it. Esau Macaulay writes that Egypt and Africa are not outside of God's people. African blood flows into Israel from the beginning as a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then there's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who hid spies of Israel when they were surveying Jericho. Her faith and her faithfulness to God's people allowed her to be included in the, in the people of Israel as well. And we know that she's mentioned in the lineage of Christ in Matthew 1.5. So she marries Salmon, and then she has Boaz. Now, this is interesting, because Boaz marries Ruth, who is another example of a foreigner being included in the people of Israel, because Ruth was a Moabite. But look at it this way, too. Boaz then stands between two of the four women included in Jesus' genealogy, and this his, he stands between Rahab, his, his mother, and Ruth, his wife, and this kinsman redeemer holds two women who are from different nations together in the people of Israel. I mean, I'll just let y'all talk about that. <laughs> that blew me away when I thought about it. Um, so God's story and God's movement towards man for relationship throw, flows through a multinational, multi-ethnic people of Israel. This story of God, his good news of moving towards man for rescue, redemption, and relationship was always multi-ethnic. It's intrinsic to the story. It's his multi-ethnic cross-cultural message on mission to make a multi-ethnic cross-cultural people. So if we accept that this is God's story and his gospel, and it's been multi-ethnic from the beginning, one ought to ask, well, how do we live into that? How do we participate in God's story in a way that distinguishes us as ones who have in fact accepted that this is God's story? Like what are the markers of a life or of a church body that, that takes up God's mission as their own? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, because God gives us the answer right here in Scripture, right here in the first book in the Bible where we've been. So we saw earlier that Abraham was the seed of the nation and, uh, and, was in this, and the father of nations. And so from Genesis 12 through 18, God refers to Abraham in the covenant these he's promising him, but it's, sometimes it's in parts and and it's in pieces. And by the time we get to chapter 18, it's, he mentions um, the how, the how the, of this covenant. And so, uh, how are Abraham and his offspring supposed to live in light of this covenant promise? And so in Genesis 18 and 19, it says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. When we think of righteousness and justice in terms of like God's gospel story, we think of it forensically, like in terms of man being justified, made right by God before God um, because of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And so our concept 
of righteous or justice tends to be spiritual. And, uh, and we apply that righteous injustice to our souls. But um, in reality, this verse, God, if for God, he had something way more practical in mind for the people of Israel, way more social, way more social. Um, God desires his people to be marked by the twin pairing of doing righteousness and justice for the sake of community. For ancient Israel, doing righteousness was... Uh, to have a devout and sincere love for God and to follow his commands, which had ethical implications. And justice referred to living uh, upright, socially moral lives among those in the land. One, com one commentary says that in regard to justice, it was incumbent upon Israel's rulers to ensure social equity for the Lord rules his people with moral integrity and fidelity. And that justice is achieved by right conduct, truth, and equity. Righteousness and justice were community terms. In righteousness, God is referring to the proper way that man is to interact with him. And in justice, he's referring to the proper way man is to interact with his fellow man. Both were distinguishing marks of God's multi-ethnic community. His people had to meet the ethical demands of ordering themselves properly before him and ordering themselves properly among one another in the land. And what is this but a practical, visible, tangible distinction to love God and to love your neighbor? But what do these twin pairings, what do these, what do these two marks tell us about God's community? It tells us that both the stewardship of the soul in right relationship with God and the stewardship of the physical body in relationship to other people is really of the utmost importance to God because of the ethical implications for the development of a social and multi-ethnic community. Meaning that if we don't get this right, we will be hard-pressed to develop that multi-ethnic community today. Well, how do you mean? Well, because of the fall. The fall ensures that we will have the propensity to order ourselves as to order ourselves to fashion gods that we will then worship and to order people according to hierarchies that we create in our societies. We are prone to worship idols. We are prone to walk in unrighteousness. We are prone to act unjustly and to order people by skin color, by class, by gender, by socioeconomic status, by education level. So the list goes on. You name a distinction and our fallen state has made a list and a category and a hierarchy for it. This is what we're prone to do. We are prone to make dividing lines and distinctions that privilege some and disadvantage others. Our hearts lean towards injustice and inequity. But this is God's story. And God's story of him moving towards man with the message of redemption that rights all of the wrongs. We tell people about the right way to order their hearts, not to idols, but to God. We share a message of doing what is right among one another, justice. And we correct the wrong that has been done amongst one another. The gospel with its multi-ethnic message to make a multi-ethnic cross-cultural people heals 
what is broken relationally from the fall between man and God and between man and man. Doing righteousness and justice are the ways that we participate in that healing. These are biblical words, not trends from secular ideologies. These are biblical words rooted in the story of God, rooted in the gospel. The church today, as the people who participate in who participate in God's story, based upon the completed work of Christ, should too bear out these marks of righteousness and justice. But as New Testament believers, we don't do it centripetally with people coming in, as Israel did. We should do it centrifugally, right, where the force spins us out into the world. We take this message out into our communities, into the nations. We do so with the mindset of building a cross-cultural community because that's the story that's been handed down to us. Evan shared with us um, the definition of cross-cultural, how, it, how it's a process that's intentional. And what I love about that definition he shared is that it's active, right? It does things, it listens, it learns, it engages, it loves, it acts, it feels. And so that's the third factor in being um, in this multi-ethnic community that God intended. How we possess, as we possess a greater understanding of God's intent for a multi-ethnic cross-cultural gospel, and we have a firm grasp on these distinguishing marks of righteousness and justice, we then have to do something with it. We have to act by taking that message out into our small world that we're in, into our spheres. Remember, God's story is his multi-ethnic cross-cultural mission message on mission to make a multi-ethnic cross-cultural people. So when we share that same message, we're on mission too. When we share a multi-ethnic understanding of the gospel, you'll do so invariably with people who are not from your same cultural background. Because you yourself are located in a very particular Situation. You have a very particular culture. You're going to meet someone who's not from your region, who didn't grow up in the South. You're going to meet someone who didn't grow up in the North. You're going to meet someone who has a different socioeconomic background, a different education level. You're going to meet someone from a different ethnicity who's not from your home culture. So then the question is, armed with a multi-ethnic understanding of the gospel, what do we do with our own culture when we seek to share this gospel with someone else from a different culture? Well, you have to layer it. You're gonna have to just layer it. Because a Christian community ought to be layered with various cultural distinctions. To state it plainly, the Christian culture cannot be one culture. I grew up in the Midwest in Missouri. And I went to Carolina for undergrad. And as a Midwesterner, I really prided myself in the fact that we did not have an accent. <laughs> very flat, like a newscaster. <laughs> and uh, it was very apparent that this was the case when I went to Carolina because Southern draws are real. <laughs> and I was just, I was flabbergasted. I was like, what? Um, so fast forward some years. I marry a Texan 
and settle down in the South, but yet I am determined to have our kids have the same flat Midwestern accent that I do, <laughs> simply because I just think it's better. <laughs> so then imagine my surprise when um, my second oldest son comes home from preschool some years ago and he tells me that he had a great time drawing with crayons. <laughs> I said, you do with what? He said, crayons. I'm like, again, from the Midwest, <laughs> took me a second. I had no idea what he was saying. And, I, and I, then it took me a second. I'm like, oh, okay, you're talking about that wax in my head. I'm like, he's talking about that wax writing tool. I'm like, you mean crayons? He's like, yeah, crayons. I said, no, crayons. <laughs> crayons, you're saying it wrong. Now, was he saying it wrong to me in my cultural background? Yes. Yes, he was. Was I judging? Was I demonstrating my cultural superiority in judging his southern accent? Yes, yes I was. But were we talking about the same thing? Yes. Yes, we were. That's how I like to think about processing a cross-cultural Christianity. A truly cross-cultural understanding of Christianity has room for different cultural pronunciations of the same risen savior. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary theologian who spent three decades in India and was a prolific writer when he retired in England, um, wrote this. I believe that the truth is credible only when the witness born to it is marked not by the particularities of one culture, but by the rich variety of all human cultures. We learn to understand what it means to say that Jesus is king and head of the whole human race only when we learn to hear that confession from the many races that make up the human family. In the end, we shall know Jesus as he really is when every tongue shall confess him in all the accents of human culture. Christian culture is not monocultural. It can't be. For the reason that we just discussed, a multi-ethnic gospel, a multi-ethnic mission of God implies there's a, that there's an expansion, an expression of that gospel that will also be multicultural. Why? Because a multi-ethnic message on a mission makes a multi-ethnic people. Please note that this Cross-cultural reality is possible when the multi-ethnic vision of the gospel is understood to be missiological. The expansion of the gospel assumes that people have, who have accepted it will go out and share it with others. It assumes that this missiological gospel requires that you and I take this out into the world. Not simply that the church holds on to it and want people just to come to it. The New, the New Testament church is a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, and, and cross-cultural because the gospel message is missiological, as God's story has been from the beginning. But it's also empowered with that centrifugal force of, of Jesus' great commission. So in order to become a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural community, we need to build a community rooted in this understanding that the multi-ethnic cross-cultural gospel is good news that moves out, 
not only good news bound up in the, in, in the ecclesiology of the church. And so let's look at Acts for a second because um, this is when the gospel goes cross-cultural. And in Acts 10, it starts with... Um, uh, Acts 10 starts with Cornelius having a vision um, about Peter. And he has a vision to have Peter come to his home. And Peter, who's a devout Jew, um, is at that time uh, very holding very tightly to his Jewish culture. He's having a prayer meeting, a prayer session up on top of his roof. And he begins to pray. And the scripture says he was praying and he became hungry. And it was at that moment that he fell into a trance and he saw a sheet descending from heaven with all sorts of hooved animals, reptiles, and birds. And a voice comes from heaven. God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter's Jewish and cultured response was to say, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. And Peter had to be told three times that what God has made clean, do not call common. Mind you, Peter had a need. He was hungry. And even in a trance, he would rather hang on to his Jewish ways and deny a need being met. To deny a need being met due to cultural normativity. This is, we are not far off from that. People out here in our neighborhoods or in our schools or in our schools or our children's schools, they have a real need. I'm not just talking about just a physical hunger, although that might be an issue too. They have a real spiritual need. And we say no because they don't match up to our culturally formed understanding of who we ought to build community with. So Peter, after the trance, he gets summoned to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius was a centurion. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And up until this point, the Jewish believers had only seen faithfulness to Christ expressed in Jewish ways and in Jewish culture. So when Peter gets to this house, the first thing he says out loud is, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, that should give you like, wait a second. That's just not what we've just been discussing these past few minutes. It might jump out. It's a little strange that Peter is saying that they are not to visit anyone from another nation. I mean, we just walked through God's intent for multicultural, multi-ethnic people with his message. So where's Peter getting this from? Well, unfortunately, the nation of Israel misunderstood the assignment. And they thought that their chosenness made them exclusive, and it seeped out into their theological and practical expressions of the faith. And they made all these laws in order to keep God's commands. And so God had to send Peter this vision three times just to undo the monocultural theological expression he was used to. So after Cornelius explains his vision, explains to Peter why he's brought him to his house, then Peter says in Acts 10.34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. 
but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Every nation. And after that statement, Peter shares the gospel. The story of God moving toward man, namely in the man, Jesus Christ. And he preaches the gospel to this Gentile family. This is the correct understanding of God's story, of God's mission to mankind. This is the understanding that allows for different cultural expressions of the faith. This is the understanding that allows for the nations to receive the grace of God. This is the understanding that, it, that demonstrates an inherent comprehension of the cross-cultural intent of God's story that motivates us to action, to build cross-cultural communities. Because that was the start of the Gentile Jewish church. So with all of this biblical evidence we have, we have struggled still as a community and as a church, as a family or as an individual. We've struggled to display these truths to their fullness. So we have to spend the last few moments of our time um, exploring why. Why have we failed to see this in scripture? Why have we failed to build our communities in multi-ethnic cross-cultural? Why have we failed to do that in this way? Why have we bristled or rolled our eyes or given an exasperated sigh or felt a tightness in our chest and experienced anxiety when we talk about growing in multi-ethnic cross-cultural missions and becoming a cross-cultural community? Why do we do these things when we worship the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had a multi-ethnic vision for his people? Well, again, we're going to just go back to scripture. We're going to let that illuminate our way. Um, We're going to go back to Genesis uh, because that's where God demonstrated his multi-ethnic cross-cultural plan. And I want us to look at a passage that I think helps explain why we struggle so much with this vision, from, with this intent from God. So in Genesis uh, 35, 1 through 4, it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the tip terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I want to use this text illustratively to highlight what I believe is happening in our day. Jacob was called to come worship God, which was required for proper order. There's a proper way to worship God. And to prepare his people to do so, he told them to put away their foreign gods. Because you can't worship too. Now, Jacob already knew God intimately as the one who answers him in the day of his distress. In fact, he had erected an altar 
to God just a few chapters before and called it El Eloi Israel when God delivered him from Esau. He knew and he worshiped God and his family knew and worshiped God. Yet, here we have the fact that they still possessed idols. Idols that had beauty and status. Idols that were associated, um, they probably gathered from the people of Shechem. And these idols had rings, rings in their ears, they had rings in their own ears. And they were associated with pagan worship. And the people, and people of his family had incorporated that pagan worship into their bodies with the rings in their ears. And they still knew the true and living God. But in order to worship God properly, they had to get rid of their idols and bury them. So commentators note that this tree can be identified with the tree of Moray at Shechem, mentioned in Abraham's encounter with Yahweh many years earlier in Genesis 12, 6 through 7. The burial of foreign gods and rings at this place under this tree marks the surrender of the items of the people of Jacob's household to the lordship of Yahweh. So I bring this story up to illustrate that it's possible to know God and to still hang on the idols, but it's not possible to worship him properly with those idols. Friends, I really do believe that we struggle to see God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural vision because our sights are blocked by idols. We struggle to be convinced to live faithfully in God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural community because we have taken the idols of this world and attached them to our bodies and called them beautiful. And we are unable to worship him properly because of it. We have wrapped our shoulders with the idol of comfort, not wanting to move outside of that comfort zone, but stay within ourselves when it comes to sharing the gospel with those who don't look like us. We hang on to the, to the idol of capitalism. We hang it around our neck, capitalism and profit. And we hang it around our neck to the point that we don't even flinch when our gains or our inheritances have caused inequity and injustice in our neighbor's lives. We pierce our ears with the idols of nationality as Americans. We place our love of country before God, and we see it as exceptional at every turn. We adorn our heads with the idol of political conservatism and liberalism in vain attempts to fashion this country into something that is suitable to our tastes. We cover our necks with the idol of arrogance, which refuses to let us to submit in humility to anyone who does not share our status, our education level, or our cultural background. We have a hard time finding, uh, humbling ourselves before the uh, underrepresented or a person who shares a different narrative or experience than we do. We rest our heads on the idol of apathy. If it doesn't bother me, it's not a problem. And we cover our hands with the idol of power because we secretly believe that all we have and all that we have accomplished has been of our own doing. And if that power goes, then that will be the end of us. And then we cover our chests 
with the idol of privilege and beat it every so often when someone challenges us about it or any of it. And adorning ourselves with this form of golden and wooden statues, we are unable to build a cross-cultural community. We are unable to be concerned about the righteousness and justice of God. We are unable to share God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural gospel message. We are unable to worship him properly. All we're able to do is find solace and comfort among those who are bound by the same idols. Friends, this is not beautiful. This is syncretism. And we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we can adorn ourselves to the idols of this world and love God and love the people of this world properly. This unholy paganism and the faith will always choke out our ability to represent and carry out God's multi-ethnic cross-cultural message. We must find the faith, courage, and humility, and the simple obedience, as Jacob and his family did, to bury those idols. And we must bury them at the foot of the tree. We must bury them at the foot of the tree that held our incarnate Savior, who in his body and upon his death tore down the dividing walls of hostility. We must bury our idols at the cross of Christ and pick up his grace and forgiveness so we might move out into the world knowing his intention for a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural message, bearing the distinctions of righteousness and justice, so we might take action to build a multi-ethnic and cross-cultural community. That's it. That's where I'm at. Thank you, baby. So uh, it's 1117. So let's take five minutes if you need to go potty or get some refreshments. And we will come back at uh, 1120 ish. Uh, and we'll have some some discussion time um, and kind of process what we we did. So, so we don't have to potty stretch your legs at least. And then we'll come back in about five minutes. Oh, yeah. Just pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's no, we, uh, we have till, till noon, but so they don't feel like we have to go till noon. But I'm going to give a little space to kind of process what's been presented and engage questions or if you're processing out loud, that's fine as well. But uh, I just want to take a moment to, to do that. So uh, what, uh, you know, what's on your mind, what's on your hearts, uh, questions, thoughts? Define well. Um, oh man, that like legitimately well is, needs to be defined. Um, I, I, where I have been most encouraged, in settings where I've been most encouraged. Um, so, like I said, my uh, a mentor of mine is Brian Loritz, and he was pastoring a church in Memphis, Tennessee, called Fellowship Memphis Church, uh, and the church was two thousand plus people, and. 60% white, 40% other. 
Uh, and in many ways, that church led the way uh, in helping other churches and ministries pursue cross-cultural multi-ethnic ministry. And uh, when I would talk to Brian, he would be excited about things that were happening. He would tell his war stories. But I remember one, one time I, I, would, I visited the church, and he was in the lobby just kind of sitting and, like, looking very reflectively. Um, and but just soberly, he was just saying, um, I, I, I love that we're sharing this room, but I wish there were more people that were sharing their dinner tables with each other. Um, and so even he, in, in, like, in his prolific ways, like, he, he still saw the growth areas. Uh, but being, like, visiting there and seeing what was done at that church was, was really encouraging and gave me a sense of what is possible. Um, and I also say maybe New, New City Fellowship in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I was for a couple of years. Um, but I feel like the... I, I, I chuckle and pause because, so I, you know, our church is part of a denomination called PCA. We ain't going to get all into that. But I have, I have encountered several churches in our denomination and also of our denomination that are trying to pursue multi-ethnic cross-cultural ministry. And I have, I, I mean, I have not met a single one that does not have severe frustrations uh, around this topic. Not a single one. Uh, now, and I used to be surprised. Right, because I would see a church and they was doing some things. Like, okay, y'all looking good. The pastor writing books and stuff on how to do it. So I'm assuming you writing a book, then you the promised land. But then I would go to these churches and I quickly realized uh, that there was a lot of frustration. That actually not everybody that is at the church is even on board with pursuing cross-cultural network ministry, which is wild to me. It's like your pastor wrote a book on. It. Um, Are you not in support of his vision? That's weird. Um, but people join church for all kinds of reasons. Um, and so that, that I used to be surprised and maybe a little disappointed, but, but it really helped me to see just countless. I have not encountered a church yet uh, that does not have some serious frustrations pursuing this. And yet uh, they, they are captured by this gospel vision and they are. Uh, some more than others, very grounded and committed to this and are uh, making good strides. And, and it's evident. Uh, and one, something I saw recently, like since, since 1990 to now, has been three times the amount of multi-ethnic churches. And, and sociologists categorize multi-ethnic as no more than 80% of, of an ethnic group makes up uh, the demographics of the church, which I think is very generous. Um, and there's been three times the growth of that uh, since 1990. And I think that's incredible. And there's still growth that needs to happen. And, um, but even being here at Christ Central, I have not encountered a frustration at Christ Central that has been unique. Uh, we are not especially broken. Uh, and that's encouraging to me. Uh, but also it creates a lot of sober-mindedness. Like it takes a lot of work. And people whom I respect greatly uh, have been disappointed and frustrated in, in ways that I, that I, I feel at times. So, um, so that's a long answer to say none, uh, but in a long way of saying like, there, that's not a disappointing reality. I think that's, that's like asking what, what church have you seen that's not sinning um, in some ways. Yeah. I've got about 30 questions that don't all fit together into one, but I guess what kind of the two-part thing I'm thinking through is the problem with um, separating 
everything you guys said, I'm like, yes, yes. Like that the reconciliation is because of the gospel and through the gospel and for the purpose of the gospel. Like separating the church's mission to be, to bring redemption and restoration to all people groups, you know, unified through diversity in the gospel. Apart from what culture wants us to do, you know, that's, you know, even good things that, or bad things, but they're not gospel-based reconciliation. Like how do we navigate that Obviously, if the gospel permeates all of our life, you know, political life and cultural life and educational life and all of that. But how do we, how do we step into that and both? So the part is one of like how do we reconcile what culture wants us to do for reconciliation versus what the gospel demands that we do for reconciliation. And then I guess the second part of that is, and how do we convince others outside of maybe a, having been in communities, Christian communities, that feel like this just this is good, but it's not like our mission. Like we don't have to do this. You know, we can have choices to be separate on Sunday morning. How do we can, how do we, because I think some of that is tainted by what cultural calls reconciliation versus what the gospel calls reconciliation. So I guess kind of all that, whatever question you can distill out of that, that kind of discussion that I feel like is having amongst other Christians and how do we have that amongst our neighbors and yeah. others. Um, I want to tackle the first part of your question because I think it's really pertinent as we consider what the, what the world's doing with the secular theologies or what they're driving at. And this might be like a different take, but um, so if we have more time, we would look at scripture and see that God was in, in Genesis was speaking to um, people from different nations, different points. He wasn't just talking to Israel and Abraham and people of Israel. He would speak to, like, Abimelech, who was not a believer. He would speak to Hagar, who was an Egyptian. Um, and he would re reveal himself in different ways. I say that because I was, the church is a main point in God making his message known to the world. But because God's grace is everywhere, it's not the only way that we see God moving. So I would say the world is pushing at a point of reconciliation. It's important for us to remember that uh, there could be some grace there from God that we shouldn't just automatically cut off because of, its, because of where it's located. Um, when the world is pushing toward reconciliation, their motives might be off. And, and their motivation, like the motivation might be off and their starting parts, starting points might be off. Uh, but as the church, I think as believers, we can mine that for the truth that's there and then direct that with the gospel. Our enemy in this world is, is, is real. It's Satan. The world is not like an enemy. It's a place that we can engage with that gospel message. So I would say, if you see something that looks almost sort of similar, what? That's like, sounds like it could be, okay, well then take the gospel there, see where, where it is, does match up, praise God for that grace, it's been there, because maybe the world is uncovering something that we've been slow to mm. pick up on, preach. Mm. Maybe the world is un unpacking something that we do have the tools, just in scripture, we have the, the doctrine to answer that. Um, so not everyone is, the world is not like an enemy. The world is a place that is devoid of Christ sometimes, and, but it's not devoid of his grace. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would press in there and find, find the commonalities. Mm 
Yeah, I'd say, uh, and, and on that tip of, of grace, I, I, I um, want to be looking for God's glory and his grace in that, and let that be what animates me, uh, primarily. Um, so, so what I'm saying is, like, there are uh, lots of times when I find myself in a context where I feel very salient by my blackness. So I'll be at a church, and there's not a lick of uh, thinking or considering about how uh, to, to welcome me. Uh, and I feel that, and I check that, um, but if I'm in a worship service, I am there to worship God. And if, if, and if in this moment we doing that by singing the mighty fortress is our God on a pipe organ, that's not my flavor, <laughs> but that is still a beautiful moment of worship. Uh, and if I cannot worship God because my, my culture is not maximizing this representation, which is a fair critique, I've really got to check that in with the Lord. Like I, I, should, I should be... Uh, like rooted people, like people mature in Christ, should be the easiest people to please. Okay. Like we, we should be able, somebody should be able to say Jesus. He'd be like, oh yes, he is good. Like it, it should, it should, it should take much. Like, oh yeah, he is good. Uh, but for for many of us, we need all these accommodations mm -hmm. before we actually are ready to worship or are ready to share the gospel. Uh, and that's some more immaturity on our part. Like, uh, and that's not to minimize. Uh, culture fatigue, that, that's not to minimize that there is entrenched racism in the church and there is actually intentionality to, to push away and to separate. Like all that needs to be engaged and whatnot. Um, and, and like intentionally so, but that is not in, that's not in conflict with if, if people are lifting up my God, I really want to be enraptured by that and let that motivate me then to, um, to pursue deeper questions or have deeper conversations. Uh, and and hopefully have some humility to say because I'm here this place is going to change like that, that doesn't feel like a humble statement but mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is inside of you and we're called to be faithful and let Him decide what fruitfulness looks like mm -hmm. uh, but uh, even in, in all of the, these different scenarios which you know there's a threshold and line to draw like when when it's right to speak when it's right to listen when it's right to get all all of that ultimately what I want to come back to is that what is always call is that we, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth um, and uh, there's a lot of cultural complexity to that but I should be excited in any setting to want to experience God because he's there he's everywhere he's there and I want to see him um, even in, even in the, the ways that we still clean the items hey, I, I, I really like, like I like how you put that and I think that when we as believers when we that passage, all things, all people, that you used earlier. I think we, I think sometimes we do a, when it comes to like cultural engagement, we do a disservice by looking at the active like, or or the expectation of others to conform to me, versus like kind of the passive that. I say, like, as an African-American black man walking into a church, like, to some degree a missional mindset, but to some degree, like, like Sam, worship God. I think that passage applies to us, you know, in the sense of I'm walking in and so that I might win something over to Christ because you don't know. Mm -hmm. 
You don't know who, I mean, it's that, seven to 800 people sitting in there. You don't know who you'll win over to Christ versus I want to conform them over to my blackness. Mm. You know, like many times I've had to check that in me. Going into a place when I first walk in the room, I'm like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, now I'm here to worship God. Mm -hmm. I'm here to serve God. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to serve me. Mm -hmm. Although some people, even in the context, you'll get the service, you know, because you are black. You can get the service sometimes. Uh, sorry, they come in apologies, you know, like, mm -hmm. sorry we didn't have this, or I, or the statement, uh, I wish our was more, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And it's like, I've been in a place where like, yo, I'm not expecting that from you. Mm -hmm. I'm here to serve, I'm here to worship, and what God can do in the context of the multi-ethnic component is what God can do with that. That's why I personally had to find resolve mm -hmm. and just trust God in those situations where I'm in. Like, mm -hmm. I gotta check me too. Like it's not anybody's job to conform to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in our spiritual walk as well. Like that. I mean that is our spiritual walk. Like that. Mm -hmm. Just another component of it. Mm -hmm. So I like how you that's good. That's a that's a real wrestle like walking yeah. like let me check myself oh, yeah. today. Before I even preach, before I sing, mm -hmm. what am I doing this for? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 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 Um, looking at the grid of four, the drive, knowledge, strategy, action. Um, what would it be? What would it look like if it's typical to hang out and drive and knowledge? What would you all think strategy and action might look like? Like real stuff that transforms or even gleaning from other churches. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, wonderful question, and I want to central it on Christ Central uh, as opposed to all people, because I think all people should. But for Christ Central, we're here in Durham. Um, I, I would say take it, one thing to do is kind of take inventory of your areas of influence. And so for, for some folks, they find themselves in an overwhelmingly white context. Uh, even if you're not white, you might find yourself in an overwhelmingly white context for whatever reason. If you're a medical doctor, it's, gonna be, uh, it's not going to be maybe ideally diverse, uh, even educators, um, not ideally diverse at times. Uh, and I say just take inventory on, on, on the rhythms of life. Uh, and where, where you can, uh, seek to engage and to learn. And I, I would say pe people don't like to feel handled, right? So you want to get a cup of coffee because you want to talk to somebody black. Uh, like I, I can appreciate the good intention in that, um, but if, if it's just a weird addendum to an otherwise apathetic life, it, it's going to come across. Uh, but if you're intentionally just a person that wants to be in relationship and experience, uh, share in the blessing, right? That's what First Corinthians might say, share in the blessing of the gospel going forward um, that should move us towards uh, not just looking for our most familiar person and talking to them at our job or even at our church. Um, and so yeah, so all four of them are working together. So we should constantly be, be reading, constantly be listening. Uh, you know, for me, for example, uh, here in Durham, there's, there's a, a particular uh, a high number of, of Asian and Asian American people. Um, and uh, honestly, up until moving here, I didn't have thought much about that. 
uh, about what it means for me to love my Asian brothers. Um, and so I, I've been trying to be intentional about knowledge uh, because there is a whole dynamic to that. Uh, so I listened to the podcast Off the Pulpit, which was recommended to me by our Korean friends, three uh, Asian pastors, and they're just, just talking through what ministry looks like uh, from an Asian context and, and just learning about you know, the, the, the pain of like somebody asking, it's like, where are you from? It's like, well, I'm from Texas. No, where are you really from? Mm-hmm. You know, Vietnam, China, where are you really from? It's like, I was born and raised in America. Um, so the, the pain of that, the pain of, of American name versus Asian name, or when you stick to your Asian name, they, they make a nickname out of it because they can't mm-hmm. pronounce it. It's like, ha, ha, he, he. Um, <clears throat> that's actually very painful. Um, and so just, just, just trying to see that as a reality, not, not everybody's reality, um, but see it as a reality, because I know I'm gonna come up uh, with that, because it seems to be an experience that happens more often than not. And uh, I, I would hope that when I'm engaging with my Korean brother or Asian brothers, that they're not feeling like I'm treating them like a, a project, or like I'm just kind of flexing to feel woke. I was like, I genuinely want to know you. And part of that means that you come from experience that experience. And so Durham is an incredibly diverse place. Um, and so I, I think if there's an opportunity uh, to, to diversify our lives and actually build relationships, it can be hard. Uh, if you're uh, you know, a stay-at-home mom, it can be hard. If you're a person working 50 hours in Durham West End, that's, that's hard. Um, all that is really hard. And do what you can. And take whatever steps you can in, in engaging all four of those things. Uh, yeah. 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 Does that make, am I responding to you? What was that podcast you mentioned? Off the pulpit. Other questions, other thoughts? Um, I don't suggest this or bring this up necessarily to diminish anything we should be doing inside Christ Central, but I did attend a church previously where we would worship occasionally with like four, four or five times a year with a AME church that was predominantly African American. Uh, and I felt like that was incredibly edifying for me. Um, is that something you've ever considered doing? Or again, I don't want to diminish what we should be doing inside our own church, but have we thought about partnering with another, you know, historically African American or otherwise church? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. So that, I mean, that is on my radar. You know, I'm always scheming. <laughs> I can grow in these things, and I've, I have seen the, you know, the pulpit swap where you know the pastor of a predominantly black church, pastor of a white church, they swap pulpits for a Sunday, or uh, there's a church in, in Raleigh that, um, you say church in Raleigh, that is, uh, is basically the white church that, uh, anyway, so they, they, they do things with a black church in the, in the area, so they have prayer meetings together, and, and uh, there's events going on at that church, they often put in the newsletter. So I think there's, there's, there's room there for us to, to engage that. And there's, there's several pastors of black churches that I'm in relationship with and starting to have some conversations. Uh, but the, the, the delicacy of that is that uh, in our racialized society, so this is a very narrow statement I'm about to make, okay, about black people. Uh, in our racialized society, the historic black church is vital. Like it, it, it must continue, it is vital. Uh, and the multi-ethnic church movement should not be in conflict with the historic black church. 
and so if someone wants to be, if a black person wants to be in a black church or wants to leave our church or leave it and say it's just too hard, I do not try to fight to keep them at Christ Central uh, because it is exhausting being in this context uh, in a lot of ways. And it's a worthy exhaustion, praise God. Uh, that's, that's that ministry life. But as long as white supremacy exists in any form, the historic right. black church right. must exist and continue and be integral to, to society and life. Um, and so when, when I'm talking with, so like the pastor of White Rock Baptist Church, uh, which is the oldest black church in the city, has, I mean, just incredible stories of contributions to Durham. I, and I'm, I'm sitting down with this pastor, he's a, he's a mentor of mine, and I, I, I want Christ Central to experience this man, experience this church. But I also am hearing how he's trying to care for people that are living in a still racialized city. And they are they come to church on Sunday exhausted and they finally have found a place where they don't have to code switch where they don't have to dress up uh, and to make sure that they are treated with dignity um, but they can just be and so I, I, I don't want I want to navigate all that well uh, because most black churches ain't having panels on multi-ethnic ministry uh, and there's a reason for that and there's a good reason for that um, and yet there's there's something to receive and something that, that, that should be learned so long answer to say, yes, that's an incredible suggestion, something that I think uh, in due time we'll, we'll see uh, uh, actualized in a particular way. But just, just thinking through the, the wisdom in that so we can actually have it be fruitful uh, and not just try it. Can I just add, there's nothing to not to wait, wait, like just going as an individual or two people. Because there's something that happens particularly for white people when a group of white people show up. So if you want to like minimize or whatever your power is done, like nothing's stopping anyone from this in this room from going and visiting a church that looks ethnically different from them or culturally different from them. I think that when you think about formation, I think something that doesn't solve everything. But if you're gonna be a member here, consider going to another church for three months somewhere else. By, by yourself or with one other person, so you're not necessarily like coming as a cause in a group and that like, mm -hmm. I mean structures need to change, but sometimes coming with that, I think, mm -hmm. is just like, it's all it's coming from a point of power, like, well, we're going to partner now, when you're, when it's predominantly mm -hmm. white, I think there's something like, if you want to be formed, just go and list, be a listener, whatever that looks like, you don't have to be just saying white people, but like you're saying with the Asian, anyway. Yeah, at least I was going to worry that that is invasive then to, to Evan's point about the historical black church being kind of, would you say a safe space? It, it could be, so that, that is a, a possibility. Um, there's a sister, in, when I was in Chattanooga, there's a sister that was at, uh, worked at uh, the college up there and white, and, and she committed to being a member of, of a black church she was the only white woman, and she joined the choir. She did all the things, uh, and she wasn't like saying, "Hey, you know, let's talk about right now." But she was a, just a member, and this is what it means to be a member of the church and life of the church. And she had to to work through that. Uh, she she joined church with a pastor that that was on his radar, uh, and like was 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 thinking was helping to think through that. And he was thinking through that, but uh, I, I don't think that should be an automatic thing because of the, the dynamic of, of safety. And so that's hard and messy. I don't know what the, the 
the exact line is, but it's a both end, right? There's a, there's a structural dynamic to that, which I think is where your question is. But then there's also an individual like, I, I want to experience how God is working in the world, and that includes uh, you know, black churches or ethnically just different churches, and and just worship the Lord and receive that. So yeah, again, both and, not a hard line. We got to we got work towards that. Yeah, I want to just piggyback off what Lisa was saying that um, the as a, as a person, it's really great to try and um, look for ways to displace yourself from your current contacts. Like, where can you go to make yourself the minority? Because when you do that, you'll gain a perspective about yourself and about the space that you're in that can be really formative and helpful. So the experience of having a pastor come in or a church or choir come in is one thing, um, but what ways in your life can you walk into the room and be like, okay, let's 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 see how this is going to go. How can where you where you feel that minority kind of burden, if you will, um, because only when you when you can like move into a different space, you can actually see the lens you've been seeing through, and then uh, and, and see what is what is what can be, what's beneficial there that's been so God glorifying there. Uh, so if you go home, if you're traveling or something, if you visit a black church, um, you'll get to again worship our risen Savior in the same place where He's been, you know, communing with those folks there. And you'll you'll learn something from from them, and you'll learn something about yourself too. So that idea of displacement is really like self-displacement is really uh, beneficial, not just structurally, but individually. So something I would encourage you all to. Another, sorry, I told you I had 30 questions. Um, I have an agenda with this question, having those kind of voice. But I feel like, how do you see our gospel-based reconciliation when there are barriers are a little bit harder to overcome? So, like, um, I feel like in this area, trying to find gospel-centered Latino community is a little bit more challenging than some others. For one, because the Catholic Church's influence is so large. So, a lot of my acquaintances where we even have a thread of gospel in common. There's a lot of gospel that's not in common, <laughs> so it's not really the same um, in our expressions of understanding of that. Or it's language barrier based because a lot of churches I feel like have ministries that are, you know, some in Espanol or great, great, great things. But it is like to have a similar gospel basis, a language barrier is really hard. So um, I feel like that's such a large section of our, especially Durham community, that I feel like it's hard for me Kind of navigate somewhat selfishly based on our family dynamic and really wanting that to be something that I mean we've had the experience that you know our older son um, cried his first service here because he said he saw boys that look like him you know it's like so knowing that that is so fundamental to like raising them to know that um, people that look like him love Jesus you know so that's really that's for me it's a really hard one because I feel like in the PCA locally, there's a really good outreach where I have resources from an Asian, Asian brothers and sisters, and I have really good resources for um, certainly black brothers and sisters. Um, but that one is harder for me to figure out how to navigate. Hey, I, I resonate with that and I feel that as well, um, especially when we have kind of outreach Events and it's uh, you know, Spanish speaking only families, and you know, maybe the, the kids are kind of trying to interpret for their parents. And uh, 
it's very obvious that there's some embarrassment about about that dynamic playing out, and trying to figure out how do I communicate uh, hospitality in that. And, um, and I, I was, I mean, I forget what was, was the pastor that used to be at our church, Demetrio. Um, I think he, I don't know if he's still here. Is he still in town? He's around. As I just think of like leaders in the community that that can, can are, are that bridge in terms of like language barriers um, and uh, and asking them because uh, I I resonate with you I have that same question because it is really hard and yet we we want to pursue that representation and dignity um, I will say yeah I'll stop there. Do you want to say something else? Yeah. Time for one more question. There is one. Opportunities are there. Um, if, we, if we take inventory and, and do the, the hard work of thinking uh, outside the box, there, there's opportunities. And it's, it's hard and feel clunky and fail, and that's why grace is, is really enough. But, I mean, grace isn't worth having if it doesn't include the opportunity to fail. Uh, if I'm going to have grace and then still feel the pressure to have it right all the time, something's not connecting right. Um, like we, we, we fail, we're going to fail, and you have room for it. Grace is actually uh, an acknowledgement of that. So uh, this, this is our, our value. Uh, this is something that we want to uh, pursue, something we want to grow in. We want this to be something that is felt uh, at our church. Uh, and uh, we're, we're committed to that in all its shortcomings and all of our sin and, and, uh, and not doing it perfectly. We're, we're committed. And uh, this was an opportunity for us to, to come together and uh, express that commitment together. Or maybe you're here and you're not sure you're committed to that. That's fine, but just know if you are committed to this church, you're also committing to, to what we have shared this morning. And hopefully, you'll uh, want to participate and share that uh, with folks in, in your life uh, so that uh, it can be just a, a normalcy along for the day that this isn't an unusual conversation, which I think we're getting there, but it's still it's often unusual. And so, uh, let's, let's grow together uh, as brothers and sisters and, and be motivated by glory and grace uh, and trust that as we endeavor to be faithful, uh, he
he's the one that produces fruit in us. Uh, so uh, humbling ourselves to, to see that fruitfulness in our lives. It will be a lifetime. Uh, it's a lifetime. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, so that, uh, that's, that's all. Uh, what, what I'll try to do is, is send a survey out to, you know, to, to you all. love your feedback, things that we can keep growing in. And this. this was a mere snapshot of the things that we could have talked about. Know that and we're okay with that because we know this isn't the end all be all. But we'll love your feedback because we want to grow and talk about this. And be in prayer. Uh, make this something that you're praying for for the leadership of this church, for your membership in this church, partnership in this church. Make this be something that's consistently uh, a matter of prayer because we need the Lord's help. Um, Fabian, would you mind praying for us okay. as we conclude our time? Gracious Father, we are grateful for your presence with us as we seek to grow in our knowledge of you as we seek to love you more and love our neighbor neighbor as well we're grateful for the time that we have to sit with your word to sit with our brothers and sisters and um, talk about things that have been particularly challenging in this country uh, challenging with this church Um, but we are uh, grateful and encouraged by by the fact that you are with us in it, and so that there's nothing that insurmountable for us, and we uh, just ask, Lord, that you will continue to strengthen our hearts, uh, expand our minds as we uh, grow, and strengthen our hearts as we um, take courage to to do the the hard things, to um, step out of our comfort zones, to bear our idols, and to um, love you and love our neighbor as well. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that the words here spoken today will just be a, a seed planted and will bear much fruit, um, not only in individual lives of each participant here, but in the life of this church. Um, we do all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I hope you all have a good rest of your weekend.